How many of you guys have ever um, played with Legos before? Anybody ever played with Legos? All right. How many of you guys still have some Legos? Anybody? Our kids, how many kids still have Legos? How, how many of you adults want to play with Legos now even still? All right. Yes. Just, just one. So I heard a long time ago um, that if you take, you know, six of those Lego bricks, you know, those eight studded Lego bricks, if you take six of them together, in fact, when they were doing the patent for this originally, they were asked how many possible combinations you could make with just six. So how many possible combinations do you guys think you can make with just six of those Legos? Somebody want to throw a number out to me? Nobody wants to. 200,000. Okay, 200,000. All right. Anybody else want to take a guess? Ten. Okay. 200,000 to 10. We've got quite the span here. Okay, one more. I'll take one more. Right back there. 26, is that what I heard? All right. The, the actual number is um, 915,103,765. You were close, Mary. You, you are still way off, but you were closer than 26. So um, whatever makes you feel good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I heard that, and and that just kind of fascinated me because the original number was like a hundred and something million, but some guy recently went and he uh, built this program to try to calculate it, and the first time he went to calculate it, it took the computer program a week, and finally he got it down to where he could calculate that in five minutes, and uh, and so then the inevitable question came, well, what happens if you add a seventh Lego to that? What happens? And he said that that in some ways, it was like any time you add another one, it, it multiplies almost 100 times the amount of time it takes them to calculate it. And so you add a seventh, you add an eighth, you add a ninth, and it just kept getting exponential uh, when you started adding all these combinations to it. And I'm not a mathematician, so I'm just going by what this guy said. But that still sounds pretty impressive to me, right? And, and what I thought about that is like you could take something like that that seems like it seems pretty limited, and yet when you hear its actual potential, you're pretty much blown away. And I, I'm just telling you today that, that God builds in this exponential potential into everything that he makes. I mean, think about the power of a seed. You guys know a seed is very small. If you take a tomato seed and you plant it in the ground, what happens? The size of that tomato plant eventually compared to the seed is so many times greater than the actual seed. And you think about it, you put it in the right soil, you can water it, you can get it sunlight, and you can get the photosynthesis thing happening and all that type of stuff, and the seed is going to grow. It's going to multiply. The potential is going to be there. Now, I want you to think about this. If he put all this potential into everything, to plants, to animals, to creation, don't you think he put some potential inside of us? He put some potential on the inside of us. Here's the interesting thing. I want you to think about your, whatever you're facing right now, whatever limitation, whatever you feel like you've come to the end of, whatever you feel like in your life is like, well, this is probably as far as I'm going to go, or this is as much as I'm going to grow. What if God could take the lid off of that and he could, he could make that multiplied like 15,000 times today? I want you to think about that. Just like you were blown away by the Lego thing, what if God has enough potential built on the inside of you that he could blow you away. 
Let, let's just take it down a little bit further because sometimes we can't, we can't think of 900 and something million, but, but what, if, what if there were 10 times the amount of faith on the inside of you that you currently have? How many of you guys know you'd be a different person, wouldn't you? What if you had 10 times the amount of boldness to act in faith towards the things of God? How many of you guys know you'd be a different person, wouldn't you? But don't you think God has that kind of potential built on the inside of us? Don't you think that that's possible? What if God could take the lid off of us today and even just 10 times the amount of love that we have? Don't you think 10 times the amount of love you currently have would make a difference in your life? And yet God has built in potential just like that. That with God, there is no lid. Here's the interesting thing. You know, you can take a seed and you can plant it in the right soil and you can put water and you can water it and you can give it sunlight and you can do all those things and the seed has no control over whether it grows or not. But the interesting thing about us humans is that we have control over whether we grow or not. We can limit the light. We can, we can put ourselves in the wrong soil. We, we, can, we can refuse to be watered. And we can ourselves limit our growth potential. And that's why it's so important as we are studying this book of 2 Timothy. We're, we're going to the, to the sixth verse here. And Paul says this to Timothy. He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, other translations here, you might see a translation that says spiritual gift. And it could be that. It could be a spiritual gift he's talking about. And as we talk about this today, you can think of this as a spiritual gift as we go through this. But we also know that Paul and, and some of the elders in 1 Timothy chapter 4 also laid hands prophetically on Timothy and imparted something. It could be a spiritual gift. It could be his calling. It could be a gifting or an, a mantle of anointing. We're not quite sure exactly what it is. And so just like a few weeks ago when we did our take five and that idea of dream kept coming up and what is your dream? What is your vision? What is your calling? It kept coming up. It kept coming up. So I want you to think about this in terms of a spiritual gift or I want you to think about this in terms of the calling that God has placed on your life, the mantle that God has placed on your life, the anointing God has placed on your life, the dream that God has placed in your heart. But I don't want to just talk about any dream. Because a lot of us, we can just say, well, let's just dream up. And let's just come up with all these dreams and all these visions and all this type of stuff. I'm not talking about just any dream that you dream up. What I'm talking about is a calling or a dream that you sense God put in you. In other words, it has a God print on it. You don't maybe understand all of it. You may only have a piece of it, but you know in your heart this has a God print on it. You know in your heart you didn't make this up. You know in your heart you're not trying to be self-serving in this, but this has a God print on it. And so I want you to think about that. And, and maybe some of you don't have that right now, but I believe you can get that. And so that, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And so the, God gives us and he imparts gifts. He imparts spiritual gifts. He imparts callings. But here, point number one, we have to understand this. The gift is imparted, but you still have to stir it. The gift is imparted, but you still have to stir it. He, he says to fan into flame. How many of you guys ever got a, somebody gave you a gift that had assembly required, right? And you're like, thank you, I guess. And you spend the rest of your day assembling that thing. That's kind of what this is like. God gives you a gift, but there's some assembly required. You gotta put some things together. You gotta stir up the gift. But there's something about that process that God uses. Because if God just gave you all of it, 
Something would be missing from it. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you get a bike that needs to be put together and you're waiting for dad to put together the bike. There's something in the process of the assembly that creates an excitement, that creates a longing, that creates an anticipation. And that's part of stirring up the gift. And so you are, whatever call God has placed on your life, you're responsible for feeding that call. There are going to be other people around you that cheer you on, that give you help, that there may be a message like I preached today that encourages you, but ultimately at the end of the day, you are responsible for feeding the call of God on your life. So how do you do that? Well, I'm going to give us some questions on how we might do that and how we might stir up the gift and feed the call. But, but you have to, I, my prayer is that you start stirring up the gift even now during this message, that you start stirring up this hunger. But a question that you might need to ask if you want to stir up the gift and the call of God on your life is simply this, what do I see? Because there are times in your life when if you see in the natural, you're not going to be able to see what God wants you to see. That there are times in your life when you have to stir up something by faith. You know, there's something that we call like a faith eye that God helps us to see through the eye of faith. So you have to ask yourself this question with God, what do I see? What is the calling? What is the dream? What is the gifting that you've placed in me, that you've placed on me? What is it that I see? And sometimes you're not going to see it in the natural. You think back to, to, you know, Moses, he led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They go into the wilderness for 40 years of wandering, and then Joshua takes over. He takes the baton. And, and listen, he, I mean, according to the track record, they had no more chance of getting into the promised land as they had for 440 years because it just hadn't happened. But here Joshua gets the baton, and he goes up to Jericho, and and many of you guys might know the story that Jericho was a city that had walls all around it, right? It was built for defenses. It, I mean, they, they said there's giants in the land. It was built for battle. It was built for just a purpose of keeping people like Joshua out. And so they bring, you know, Israelites come up to Jericho. And uh, we see in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. And none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see. That word there is so important. He said, see. See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its mighty king, with its king and mighty men of valor. The truth is, if Joshua were to be honest, what he saw was not victory. He saw walls in the natural. But God wasn't asking him to see in the natural. God was acting, he was asking him to act in faith and to see through the eye of faith. So what I'm saying is this, you have to see something before you see something. Is anybody getting this this morning? You have to see something, what I'm talking about, you have to see it in here before you see it out here. You have to see something in the eye of faith, through the eye of faith, before you see something. So what did Joshua see before he saw? Anybody confused yet? Just track with me, okay? I can tell you this, give you a little hint. He didn't see walls. He saw opportunities. And I don't know what you're facing right now that looks like a wall in the natural. The question is not what does it look like in the natural. The question is what does it look like through the eye of faith? What does it look like? See, too many of us have eyes to see pro problems and not victories. Like we've been trained just to see problems. That's like our whole attitude is whenever we see something, it just confirms in us a, a preconceived idea of how we've expected life to be. We expect to see problems. And so what do we see? We see problems. Even when God places opportunities, we just see problems. 
But we have to be able to see through the eye of faith. So when I was a, a youth pastor, I lived up in St. Joseph, and we were youth ministry in St. Joe, and, and I just had this thing, like got this God print thing drop into my heart. And this God print thing was that I was to believe for us to minister to a tithe, 10% of the city, the whole city's teenagers. Now we did some figures and we did some numbers and we figured there were 8,600 8, and something teenagers in the city. And so that meant it was gonna be like 863 teenagers. If we were gonna minister to a tithe, we we're gonna see 863. And so God placed that, that God print on my heart to see 863 teenagers. And so what did I do? I printed off that number, 863, whatever it was. I can't remember the exact number now, but printed off 863, and I put it all over the walls of my office. I put it, we talked about it all the time. There's the 863. What was I doing? Because I would look out, and I wouldn't see it in the natural, but I was seeing it through the eye of faith. So we began to do that. And listen, over a, a period of months, our youth ministry began to grow, began to double. We would start to see hundreds of teenagers uh, being ministered to. Uh, in, we saw 1,000 people coming to our events. We'd see 100 and something people saved at one time. In one year, we saw 1,226 teenagers give their lives to Jesus just in the youth group. Why? Because I saw something before I saw something. The question is, what do you see? It's such an important question. What do you see? Now, here's a tool that I use, and you might, this might be helpful for somebody because we're talking about potential. We're talking about taking the lid off. Sometimes I'll, I'll ask this question. You may have done this before. If I had blank, I would blank. <laughs> So if I had, fill in the blank, whatever it is, if I had unlimited money, if I had limited time, if I had unlimited resources, if I had these connections, if I had this idea, then I would fill in the blank. You know what that does for me? It starts to take the lid off for me. It starts for me to connect with what God's possibilities are rather than what my current limitations are. And so some of you, even right now, Maybe, we, we didn't do this last night, but, but you might just close your eyes right now, just, just right there where you're at, and just, just think about what is the limitation factor that you've kind of put a lid on, and just ask yourself that question, well, if I actually had that, what would I do? If I actually were 10 times as bold, what would I do? If I actually did have 10 times the faith, what would I do? If I actually did have the money, what would I do? If I did have that connection, what would I do? Because what we're not trying to do is trying to just live in the natural. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. And so here's what you need to understand. You guys can look up if you want to. Faith sees before others see. The people of faith are the ones who seem crazy at the time. But it's not that they're crazy. It's just that they see something that no one else can see yet. Because they're seeing through the eye of faith and not through the natural. And this is something that God partners with us to do. And so I saw this video this week, and it's, there's nothing special about this video. It's just scriptures over music. But as I saw this video this week, I really felt like the Holy Spirit was going to be in this moment for somebody, maybe a lot of somebody's. But what it was going to do, just simply as you watch this video, that I really had this impression that somebody, somebody's dead dream was going to come alive. Somebody was going to get a new a uh, God print thing on their heart, a new calling. Somebody's going to be stirred up even just by 
watching this. So I want you to be open to the, to the power of the Holy Spirit in this moment because even though it's just a video, I know how God speaks to me. And when he says, hey, there's something on this, you need to do this, that there's a reason why there's a moment that we're gonna connect with this. And so maybe it's you. So let's watch. Listen, those scriptures apply to you as much as they do to anyone else. They apply to you as much as they, yeah, you right there sitting in your seat that you think that must have been for, they apply to you as much as anyone else. All right, let's keep reading. You have a purpose. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Many of us have heard this scripture before. It says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He goes on to say, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's kind of interesting here that he tells him to stir up the gift and he says, don't be afraid of doing that. Don't be ashamed of me. Why would Paul say that next? Like, don't be ashamed of me a prisoner. Well, I can tell you one of the reasons is because at that time, there were several of Paul's working counterparts in the gospel that were actually ashamed of Paul because they thought he must not be a real apostle if he was imprisoned. He must not be a real apostle if he was persecuted for his faith. He must not be a real apostle because he seemed to be losing, okay? And so there were many, and you can see later on the book, many of them had deserted him and said, no, he must not be the real deal because he's going through some stuff and because he's suffering. And so many were ashamed. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, he's saying, don't be ashamed of me and don't be ashamed of this calling we've been called to. What is he saying? It's point number two, which is this. The gift may be imparted, but you still have to walk confidently in it. You have to walk confidently in it. And too many times we get ashamed or we get uh, off track. We try to hide what God has deposited in us. We don't think we're worthy to walk it out. And so what do we do? We don't do anything with it. We think, why would God call me to this big thing? Why would God do, use me in this way? And so God has given us gifts, but we have to walk confidently in that. What, what does that look like? Well, uh, we might have to ask this question. We asked the first one, which was, what do I see? We might have to ask this question. What should I be? In other words, if God has given me this gift, what do I have to become to do what God wants me to do? 
Who do I have to become? What kind of character do I have to have to accomplish what God has placed in my heart? What kind of training? What kind of skills? What kind of discipline? What kind of attitude? What kind of habits? What kind of heart do I have to have about me to fulfill what God wants me to do? Because here's the truth. You cannot stay who you are and become who God wants you to be at the same time. And so many of us think, you know, God's placed a calling on my life, and so I'm just going to start doing it. But you cannot stay who you are and become who God wants you to be simultaneously. They are at odds with one another, which means that something about you has to change. Something about us has to grow. Something about us has to be different. Now, there's a famous parable in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. It says, For it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and he entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents. Everybody say five. All right, just making sure you're with me. He gave five talents. To another he gave two. Everybody say two. All right, and to another he gave one. Everybody say one. You guys are with me today. All right, so he says he gave them all each, listen to this, each according to their ability. Five, two, one. Each according to the ability. He knew their ability. He gave according to their ability. Then he went away, and he would receive five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made how many? You guys are watching, okay? So he also gave the, one, the two talents, and he made how many more? You got it. He gave, he, who received one talent went and did what? He dug a hole, buried it. Why? Why did he do that? Here's what I want you to see. He gave each according to their ability. So he knew that the five-talent person could do at least five more, right? He knew that the two-talent person could at least do two more. And he knew that the one-talent person could at least do one more. He gave according to their ability. Now, this can be negative or it can be positive because you might be sitting here thinking, well, God just gave me one. You know, why didn't God give me five, right? You know, if God is according to the ability, why didn't he give me five? And this is what happens. Many times we're at the one and we think, well, why didn't God give me five? And so we hold on to the one and we don't multiply the one. We don't do what we're supposed to with the one. And the issue isn't whether you're a one or a two or a five. The issue is what you do with the one, two, or five. Because each one, and here's here's what you have to understand. He gave according to their ability, and each one had the ability of 100%. The five could double, the two could double, the one could double. Every single person had an opportunity for 100% return. So the question is, what are we doing with what God has given us? And if right now, if you're a one person and you think, well, I don't see my opportunity. There's no big open door like so-and-so has. There's no big open door. Could it be, if there's no opportunity happening right now in your life, no open door happening in your life, could it be that God needs to prepare you internally just a little bit more? That maybe who I need to be isn't matching what I need to do. Could it be that we need to prepare just internally just a little bit more? Because here's what I know. Have you guys ever discovered this? That when God acts, he rarely acts quickly. (laughs) But when he does act, he acts suddenly. God seems to take his time, doesn't he? I mean, we're like, God, what what you doing, you know? And then all of a sudden, God will finally do something, and everything happens almost instantaneously. I mean, you think about Joseph, who was in prison for years, right? And one conversation unlocked his destiny. 
One conversation got him out of prison. God rarely acts quickly, but when he does, he acts suddenly. You think about the children of Israel, 400 years of slavery, 40 years in the wilderness, but it just took seven, time, seven days, seven times around those walls, but in one shout, the walls came down. So what I'm saying is that no matter where you're at right now, God knows your ability. He knows you have 100% potential, 100% for every person, no matter what your ability is. But the question is, maybe there's some work that has to happen internally before God can act suddenly. And could it be that the reason why there's a long delay is not on God's end even? Maybe it's on our end. Maybe there's something in us that needs to change. But, but the truth is, you could be one conversation away from your promotion. You could be one decision away from your destiny. You could be one moment away from unlocking the next part of God's plan for your life. You really could. But I've said this before, and I'm going to say this again. And here's the quote, before God promotes you to the next level, you have to already be walking in that higher level of anointing and authority, but without the position and title. Let me say that again, because I don't know if anybody got that just yet. You may have got it, you just didn't want to receive it, okay? <laughs> that could be what's happening. Before God promotes you to the next level, you have to already be walking in that higher level of anointing and authority inside without the position, without the title, without the externals, without the accolades, without the achievements, without the, even without the opportunities, you have to be operating on the inside as if you are already there. What do I need to become? All right, let's keep going. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 12, it says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but everybody wants to hear this part, right? But share in the suffering. Share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who saved us and he called us to a holy calling. We've been called to a holy calling. Not because of our works, not because we're so great, but because of God, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Here's some good news for somebody that God knew even before he created the world, he knew where you would be right now on this day. He knew what situation you'd be in. He knew what trials you'd be facing. He knew what struggles even before the ages began. And which for now, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the cross. We're on the cross. Jesus paid the price. He took our sins. He paid the price. He took our place. He rose from the dead and he brings us life. And it says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So the gift is imparted, but we still have to stir it. The gift is imparted, but we still have to walk confidently in it. This is the challenging part, because whether you've been even a spiritual gift or just a calling, a mantle upon your life, the gift is imparted, but we still have to bring it to the cross. We have to bring our calling back to the cross, our gifting. And the cross is kind of anti every message today, right? It's like everything is bigger, better, more comfortable. Now, when we just talked about some bigger, better, okay? There's nothing wrong with bigger, better. But you can't bypass the cross in the process because the cross is really like a giving away. It's like a surrender to God's calling. 
See, when God places something in your hand, whether that be a gift, a spiritual gift, a calling, a mantle, an idea, whatever that is, what most of us tend to do is close our hand and say, thank you. (laughs) But when God places a gift in our hand, what we have to do is we have to leave it open and we have to let it ride there. Because many times God will just give us a piece of it. And what many of us do is we begin to fill in all the gaps of it. And many times God just gives us a piece, but we want to, we're so, we're so many of us, we're planners and we're goal setters and we're five years out and we're all this stuff. And so we get a piece of the plan and we, we close our hand and we start going with it, walking confidently in it, which we should, but we always have to bring it back to the cross. We have to say, God, here it is. Do what you want. You know, Paul, uh, I'm sure when God called him to be a preacher and called him to go and bring the gospel, as he opened up his hand and God put that in there, he, if he was going to fill in the gaps, he might not have filled in the gaps with prison, beatings, execution, trials. In fact, I don't think he would have. <laughs> I don't think many of us would. He might have filled it in with a bunch of other things, but he might have missed some of his most significant moments of ministry. And as he was sitting in prison writing this letter after being persecuted by Nero and sitting on death row, he, had, he shared in some sufferings. He had to take his calling back to the cross and say, I'm willing to walk out whatever you have for me. And we actually can know, we're pretty certain we know where Paul was at as he was writing this letter. And I I hadn't seen this until I started studying for this, and I thought it was pretty cool just to give us a a picture, an actual place to kind of put with this of where Paul most likely was at when he wrote this letter. So let's watch. According to Roman history, Emperor Nero visited Nicopolis in 66 AD to compete in the Actian Games. Since Nero was a megalomaniac feared by all the people, The contests were rigged so that he won every event that he competed in, from music contests to chariot races. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Did Paul and Nero meet up again in Nicopolis? Was Paul arrested there and brought back to Rome? We just don't know. But shortly after the Actian Games, Paul was back in Rome, in prison, and ultimately condemned to death. Paul's second imprisonment in Rome may have started in the Praetorian barracks or another rented apartment, but it probably ended here at the infamous Mamertine prison. Now this prison was originally constructed in the late 7th century BC as a water cistern, but the Romans used it for high profile criminals under sentence of death. There's an ancient tradition that both Paul and Peter were held here during the final years of their lives. The dungeon of this prison was called the Tullianum, from Tullius, meaning a spring of water. The Tullianum was a rounded subterranean chamber about 23 feet in diameter. Usually, prisoners were removed from the chamber to be executed, although some faced their end inside the chamber itself. Sometime during his final house arrest, before coming here to Mamertine prison, Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy. He seems to already know his final verdict of execution and is simply waiting for his sentence to be carried out. 
This is what Paul wrote. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, 6-9 Paul was executed here in Rome in about 67 AD. According to ancient sources such as Clement, Dionysius, Eusebius, and Tertullian, Paul was executed by beheading, a death befitting a Roman citizen. Ancient records suggest that Nero himself knew Paul, so it's likely that he had Paul beheaded through order of the prefects of Rome. So as you can see, I mean, that's the most likely place. Now, that guy said that, uh, you know, he may have written it before that. A lot of scholars believe he was actually there in that place. So I just want you to put yourself there for just a moment and imagine like when God places a calling on your life, you don't, you don't always think you're going to end up in a place like that. And, and that was because of persecution. That wasn't because, you know, sometimes we can get all theologically off and think that, you know, that God is placing bad things in our life to teach us. Like, no, that's not what God does. But there are times when we're persecuted or there's time when there's issues that we have to overcome. And so what many of us do when we're, we've got a call of God on our life, we got a gift that God places in our heart as we, we ask this question as we're moving forward. We ask this question. It's, it's the wrong question, by the way, but we ask the question, is the path clear? Because a lot of times we, in our minds, we think that, hey, if God has opened a door, we judge the open door by whether God moved everything out of the way for us or not. Like many times as we're praying, I mean, come on, just be honest. We're like, we've got three or four options in front of us. We're like, God, what's the open door here? And then all of a sudden we'll see like a path that opens up and we'll say, oh man, God opened up door number two. Look at that. Have you guys ever done that before? We pray uh, for open doors, and what open doors end up being is the path of least resistance. And we begin to theologically equate whatever the path of least resistance is as an open door from God, which is in fact entirely unbiblical. Because that's not what happened many times in Scripture. So we ask the question many times, is the path clear? The right question that we should ask is, is the path from God? It seems obvious, but too many times we confuse them. And we think, well, the path is clear. It must be from God. Instead, we need to simply ask, is the path from God? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 and 9, it says, this is Paul, he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me. We would love to put a period right there, wouldn't we? For a wide door of effective work has opened to me. And, and it's just wide open. It's clear. But how many of you guys know you got to keep reading the rest of the verse, right? And the rest of the verse, the verse says, and there are many adversaries. You see, sometimes the wide open door, every door from God doesn't mean that it's problem free. Don't be led by problem-free directional uh, guidance when it comes to following God. Because if that's what you do, you'll end up in a place of least resistance and end up in a place that's probably fairly comfortable, but you might, in fact, end up in a place that's entirely not where God wanted you to be. And so we have to ask the question, is the path from God? 
Because many times opportunities and open doors come disguised as problems, come disguised as opportunities, come uh, as opposition that turn into opportunities, come disguised as giants in the land, and yet that's the path from God. And so many of us, we just look for the path of least resistance. Sometimes they come in the form of failure, delay, disappointment even. I heard this said this week from somebody that said, everyone loves the cross. When we sing about the cross, oh, the wonderful cross. We, we sing songs, the wonderful cross. Everyone loves the cross when Jesus is on it. Taking our place. But no one loves the cross when we have to get on it or put our dreams on it. And yet we're called to, to take up our cross, right? I mean, you think about Abraham, and you know, God makes this promise with Abraham, and Abraham is he, he's, he's the father of the faith, but he didn't have any kids at the time. God makes the promise with him. All of a sudden, he has this miracle child, Isaac, and God tells him to go climb the mountain and to lay his son on the altar. Why would God do that? There's so many theological things we have to wrestle with, but nonetheless, let's just keep the, the story in its most simplest form that Abraham takes his son Isaac and he, he, he doesn't know what to do with it because God promised him this son. He doesn't know what to do with it because he, he knows it's really not in the character of God to do this, yet he feels so strongly that God is asking him. And so he, he makes this decision in his heart. He's like, well, whatever happens, I'm just gonna trust God that even if Isaac dies, I'll just trust that whatever he wants to do or raise him from the dead, that, that he'll do that if it comes down to it. But I'm going to obey him. I'm going to just trust. I'm going to lay the dream on the altar. And some of us need to get back to that place where we're willing to lay the calling, the dream, the gift on the altar of God and say, God, whatever you resurrect, I'm fine with. But I want to just leave it there on the altar and whatever is left, whatever you resurrect, because here's the problem. Too many of us, what happens is we start something in the spirit and we try to muscle it out in the flesh. And if you wonder why something's not working right now and you wonder why it doesn't seem to have the same thing it used to have on it, or you wonder why, you know, yeah, I expect resistance, but this doesn't feel like resistance. This feels like I'm working against God. It's because you started in the spirit and you're trying to end it in the flesh. That we haven't been willing to, lay, to go back on the altar and say, God, I'm laying this on the altar. I'm bringing it to the cross. And whatever you resurrect is fine with me. And I fully realized that as I was preparing this part of the message, that most people, as I preach this, will not do this. Most of you will not do this. Because it's hard. Most of us will go through this part of the message and we'll like skim read. We'll skim read through the message. We'll go back through our notes later and we'll skim read through this part to get to the good parts. But I also was encouraged that if just one person would do this, if just one person would really do this and actually take this to the altar and actually open up their hands and actually do this and be willing to lay something on the altar and say, God, whatever you resurrect, I'm fine with, that there is multiplied life on the other side of the cross. There's multiplied life on the other side of the cross. And if somebody in this place experienced that, it would be worth our time. It'd be worth my preparation. It'd be worth this moment right now. Because there's multiplied life on the other side of, of, of death when resurrection is involved. All right, let's wrap this up. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. 
says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And we're gonna wrap up with this thought. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So the, the gift has been imparted, you have to stir it. The gift has been imparted, you have to walk confidently in it. And the gift has been imparted. And when you've taken it to the cross and after you've taken it to the altar, the gift has been imparted, but now you have to guard it. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, very famous scripture says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Another translation says, where there's no vision, a vision from God, that people run wild. They do whatever they want. Sometimes if we don't stay focused on the vision and the calling that God has for us, we end up running all over the place. We end up getting confused, walking in confusion. We end up trying all these different things because we have not held on to the vision that God has for us. And we know that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes to steal calling. He comes to steal dreams. He try, tries to get us to live insignificant lives, unimpactful lives. And one of the quickest ways we do this and we fail to guard what God has in our life is when we just do nothing. It's like we, we're looking around and we're saying, well, there's nothing I can do for my specific call that I, I mean, I saw all this potential. I saw all this stuff and there doesn't seem like I can do anything and so I'm just gonna do nothing right now. The quickest way to lose what God has given us is to let it dry up on the vine. I've got these tomato plants right now that are just drying up all over the place. How many of you guys got some that are dying right now? Just me, okay. Probably because I didn't water them. That, that could be part of it but we dry up on the vine. So we ask the question, what do I see? We ask the question, what should I be? Let me give you a final question that we might need to ask. What is the need? Like when I look around me, what is around me that I could do? What, is there a need around me that I could meet? Like I'm so focused on what I think needs to be happening and all this type of stuff and I just can't seem, but is there a hurt around me that I could just go ahead and heal? Is there a need around me that I could just go ahead and meet? Is there a step I could just take that would be God-honoring step just to keep me moving forward? Because sometimes we don't always get to start out doing exactly what we think we ought to do, right? This is, this is one of the hardest things for people to realize is that we, many times God places something on our heart and we just, we're holding out because we think that, well, I'm gonna do that or I'm gonna do nothing. But what is the need around you? Is there a need that you can go ahead and meet? You know, there's a scripture in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16. It says, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. And that's true. A lot of us, you know, we believe that God has placed a gift and calling on our life. And one day we're gonna stand in a place of, of impact, of a place of greatness, of a place of where we feel like we made a difference. A gift makes room for you, yes, but laziness cancels out a gift. And if we can't be faithful in the little things, we won't be faithful in the, in the much. Let's have the worship team come back up as we close, but that scripture, Luke chapter 16, verse 10 says, if you are faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in the little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. That's where I think a lot of us end up getting is that our gift dries up on the vine because we're unwilling to find needs around us and to meet them and just to start 
moving, just to start helping, just to start healing hurts. How many of you guys, let me just close up with this. How many of you guys uh, remember uh, that movie, Christmas Vacation? Anybody moving? Yeah. And so Clark is wanting to have like this perfect Christmas. And so he tries to get all the, his family together and create this perfect Christmas. He's got the Christmas lights on. By the way, how many of you guys are already ready for Christmas? Let me just see who you are. Okay, and how many of you guys hate those people? Let me just see who you are. Okay, just wanted to create a little tension before we left. But so Clark is wanting to create the perfect Christmas and he's got all the Christmas lights and he's got everything, but everything's going wrong. And then all of a sudden, who shows up? Can, tell, can somebody tell me who shows up? Cousin Eddie shows up, right? He has no job. He shows up with his RV that does not, it looks like it's not gonna hold together. He shows up uninvited. He's mooching off everybody. He hands Clark his Christmas list to buy for him. Clark is paying for his dog food and everything. And then somebody asks him the question. Somebody asks somebody the question and said, why doesn't, cousin, why doesn't Eddie have a job? And what, is, what, is they, what do they say? He's holding out for a management position. <laughs> How many of us as believers are holding out for a management position? And what happens is we end up not fulfilling our calling because we're holding out for a management position. Because we won't just start where we're at. We won't just start with the little thing. We won't serve in the small. And so I would just say, stop waiting for what you think you got to have. Stop waiting for perfect conditions. If you're, if you're thinking that if you started something in the spirit, now you're, you're going in the flesh. Listen, it's time just to get back to open up our hand, take it to the cross, say, God, I'm looking around. Where, who, do you want me to, who do you want me to heal? What hurt do you want me to, to heal? What need do you want me to meet? Where can I step forward? And... and it's because God guides as we move. And when we get stagnant, we plant our feet and we say, I'm, I'm just gonna stay here in this and, until I see what I need to see, then we end up missing God. Stir it, walk confidently in it, take it to the cross, guard it. And I believe if we do these things that we'll be a little bit further along in our calling and our purposes as we walk this out. Would you guys stand up with me and I'm gonna have you ask one question. To, just one question. So if you guys would bow your heads and close your eyes as we do this. Very important question. Just ask this, just ask Jesus, what are you saying to me today? Jesus, what are you saying to me today? Now let's give him space to answer that question. stirring it up? Have I buried it? Or am I walking confidently? Am I holding too tight? Or am I willing to bring it to the cross? And am I ready to meet needs around me, guarding this vision, saying, I, I'm not just going to let it dry up on the vine. I'm just going to guard it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it even in the meantime. I want to protect it I'm not going to be stagnant. Lord, I pray as a result of this message and these seeds that are sown that 
people will be stirred up as a result. Come on, right, right where you're at. Some, I just felt like somebody is... Uh, Somebody's been fighting, just been fighting internally. And if, if you're honest, you, you're really upset with God because something didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to turn out. And God's calling you. He's like, hey, come on, it's time again. It's time again. But there's something about us that does, doesn't want to go through that again. we got to take it back to the cross and say, God, here's my life. Here's my life. It's all yours. And I just really felt like somebody was having that conversation even just now, and by me saying that, that was confirmation of that. It's time to open up our hands again and to say, God, I'm willing. Even if it's little, even if no one sees it, I'm willing to just start walking. So Lord, we just say all of our life is yours. It's in your hands. And I pray in this church that you would stir up things in our hearts. Dreams, visions, calling, spiritual gifts, things that have a God print on it. Let there be an excitement again. But Lord, help us to keep the right perspective. It is not, the reason you give these things to us is not for, for us as much as it is for a bigger plan. It's not so we can selfishly grandstand and say, look what we accomplished. It's so that we can serve others so that we can serve others. So help us to have a heart for other people. It's not what you're trying to, it's not a kingdom you're trying to build in our hearts of look how much I can do for God. Look how much God did in me. But one day our hope is that we would run, not run wild, but we would run well, that we could say, that we'd hear these words God said, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. So, Lord, that's our prayer. That's our heart.